1: Every Lord's Day, we are we are called to uh, remind ourselves how God is holy and just and righteous, and and then we 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 go to Him and we confess our sins to Him. And the passage from today to help us comes from Acts chapter five. It's a pretty well known passage, um, so let's start from the beginning. Anyway, so. Here is, but a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property with his wife's knowledge. He kept back from his, for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said to Ananias, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie? You see that? to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the lands, While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed into your hearts? You have not lied to man, but To God, when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. In the same way, we're not going to keep reading, but you know this passage, the same way uh, uh, his wife also lied to Peter. And in the same way, he fell down on the ground deadly as a sign of God's judgment. And you can see right away that we don't have two, two gods. Some people say we have a God in the, in the Old Testament and a different God in the New Testament. The, the God-wrath in the Old and just this nice God, loving, merciful in the New. But that's not the case. And how many times we, we forgot about it. We forgot that our commitment is, first of all, with God. Not with our husband and wife. Not with our kids, not with our church leaders. It is with God. And just as Ananias and Sapphira, we fake so much. We fake who we are sometimes. We fake what we have. We pretend because they were not supposed to commit themselves to give the whole money. But they did so. Why? Why? Why we sometimes pretend to be so good when we are not? Why we pretend so much to be so spiritual when we are not? And I was reading this week, Paul Tripp, in his devotional book, we don't need, we don't need to fake who we are. Because Christ's grace is enough for us and reach us as we are and help us in our sanctification. And Ananias and Sapphira really remind us, remind our own need to confess our own sins because I'm sure that sometimes we do fake who we are. We do fake. But before God, there is no fakeness. He sees everything. He knows everything. So, please, kneel where you are if you're really able to. And let's confess our sins. Turn with me to the book of Daniel. The prophet Daniel writing this book primarily to those um, from the Southern Kingdom, Judah, in exile, Babylon. And the reason why I, I, you can see in our bulletins the title The Christian, that's English, it's a difficult word to pronounce, the, the Christian Pilgrimage. I hope it's right. Um, And the reason why I I put this title is because in some way, Daniel and what he is experiencing here in exile and all the remnants, they're actually um, personifying our lives today Uh, in such a way because even after the exile finished, uh, they were still feeling in exile. They were back home, as I'm going to say later on, but they were still feeling that they, they were still in exile. Back in Jerusalem, but still feeling. That's why Nehemiah chapter 9, he's going to say, we are still slaves. Behold, we are still slaves. Yet, we are in Jerusalem, but still slaves. And then Peter is going to say the same, second, First Peter, that we are exiled. We are still in exile. So, that's why I, I, I chose this title here, The Christian pilgrimage. So, basically, Daniel here, before we just jump in our reading here, uh, uh, he's writing to the exile, those who are in Babylon. And you know, basically, the exile was God punishing his people for forsaking his covenant, as Isaiah prophesied, for forsaking, uh, especially uh, on the Sabbath day, as Jeremiah prophesied. So, seventh years in exile actually was God claiming the Sabbath, the, 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 the the biggest Sabbath to give rest to the land. And rest for what? From what? From immorality, idolatry. So, that was the way that God used to clean up the promised lands by sending His people to exile. So, Daniel's Historical setting here marks, if you notice, the application of God's covenant to his people. Especially based in Deuteronomy chapter 28, when God promised blessing for obedience and curses for disobedience. And in Deuteronomy chapter 28, Moses himself anticipated captivity to God's people. So that's very important here. This is a crucial time for uh, the history of God's people in the Old Testament. But God had also promised, made a covenant with Abraham, made a covenant with Moses, made a covenant with David. So that that was a, a huge moment for those who are in exile to question themselves. Are God still in control? Is God still faithful to his words? To his words of judgments and to his words of promises. Of course, to his words of judgments is already a fact here. People were were in exile, so he has been faithful to his words of judgments. Now the question is: Is God faithful to his words of promise? In other words, that he would restore his his people uh, joy uh, again, bringing them back. So let's go to Daniel uh, chapter 5. Sorry, Daniel chapter 1. So in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God and place the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashfinah, the chief of eunuchs, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youth without blemishes, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that the king drank. They were to be educated. In other words, they were to be great, to make great. Just a pause here for you to understand it. To make, to make them great. That's the original uh, Hebrew word here, they were to be educated, to, to be made great for three years. And at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names, Daniel, he called Bech, Becher, oh my word, Belshazzar. Hananiah, he called Shadrach. Mishael, he called Meshach. And Azariah he called Abneg. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food, or with the king, with the, the wine that he drank. Therefore he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defy himself. Verse 9, And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of e- the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and your drink. For, for, for why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who, who are with you with your, uh, your own age? So you would endanger in, in, in my head with the king. Then Daniel said the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananias, Michelle, and Azariah. Test your servants for ten years. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youth who eat the king's food be observed by you. And deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for ten days. At the end of ten days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these youth, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them, and among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Ananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king, and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and encountered that were in, in all his kingdom. And Daniel were there until the first year of the king Cyrus. Let's ask God's blessing upon his word. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the blessing uh, um, of being brought into your house today. And we pray that your Holy Spirit help us to meditate in your words and to understand it as we walk in this earth as Daniel and his friends walked in exile in Jesus name we pray Amen kids imagine yourself in Daniel's place Um, Daniel was about 13, 14 years old you're getting there you're gonna get there and At this age, he was uh, took out of his lanes, out of his family, out of everything that he knew about God. And he he and his friends and many other youths were brought into Babylon as slaves. So the first challenge for Daniel as a teenager, we can say, was to understand that because God is faithful to his words words of judgment, words of promise, Daniel and his friend, they had to resist temptation of assimilation into the Babylonian culture. They had to resist this temptation of assimilation to the immorality, idolatry. And they had to keep their worship exclusive to God. So as you see in our bulletin, our first point here we're going to see Daniel going on here, is resisting temptation of assimilation into a fallen culture. Pretty much as our culture today, our society today, you, we just heard our brother praying here uh, uh, for God protect us, protect us. Um, and we saw here praying against secularism, abortion, and the removal of the LGBT agenda in the public policy. That's what we are facing right now. A great pressure from our society. But what is assimilation, kids? It's a big word. Assimilation is the process by which a person acquires characteristics of a group. It can be characteristics such as social, psychological, political, religion. So you observe, you foster it, and then you start to live in light of it. You lose your identity. That's what Daniel is facing right now, this kind of simulation. And he's only 14 years old, just a teenager. And why is the king choosing kids with 13, 14, 15 years old? Because at, the, at this point, kids, you are in a teachable age. And you, you'd be willing and able to learn new things and give up the old things. That's why the Babylonian king only wanted teenagers to learn new things, to be willing to embrace, adopt, and foster, and promote a new ideology, agenda, among their own people. They would become the king's missionaries. That's the point here. That is what Daniel is Resisting here. It's not different from our society, as I said. So, how does our society invite us to embrace, adopt, and foster its immorality, its evil culture? How does our society do that with us? Can you see verse 4 and 5? It seems that the way society has always invited Christians to embrace and adopt and foster it's evil culture. Immorality is by offering us. Privileges. Power. Status. A place. And who is not looking for a place? Everybody's looking for a place. We are all afraid of being rejected. I can see my kids. I can see myself. So we fake. As I said. That's what Ananias and Sapphira. They did in the early church. They faked some generosity. That they didn't have. So. That's the threat here. And of course, there are privileges and power and status that they are not bad in themselves, you know. They are not bad, they can be blessing from God. They can be blessing, a blessing from God, as long as we understand that those privileges, power, status, money, whatever it may be, they are just means by which God wants us to use us to serve Him, to propagate His agenda. The gospel, his kingdom, to promote his glory instead of serving ourselves, instead of glorifying ourselves, instead of becoming idolatrous. So that's a huge temptation that Daniel is going through this age as a teenager. And that's a temptation that any Christian will go through this life. As long as they live here as pilgrims facing so many temptations of assimilating to this evil culture. And in fact, Daniel's here, as you can see, perhaps already came, came into our minds, reflects Jesus' own temptation. He resisted just as Jesus did. So the early church also faced the same temptation You may remember when Paul writing to believers in Rome. He appealed to them. Romans 12. Do not be confirmed to this world. In other words, do not assimilate yourself to this world. Don't think as the world thinks. Don't do that. But be transformed by the renewal of your minds. That's why it's important for us. To remind ourselves that we need to be transformed every day, especially on Sundays, when God Himself renew His confidence with us, through His words, through His sacraments. So that's Paul calling the people here, be transformed by the renew of your mind, that by testing, testing that you may discern what's the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And Paul goes on saying that our resistance aims sanctification, and that was what Daniel and his friends were pursuing, sanctification. Paul con- continues to say to present your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And that's not an idea in the early church. That's the way Daniel and his friends were already think in the Old Testament to be a spiritual worship, even when they were not in Jerusalem, the spiritual place, the ordained place to worship God. Did you see that? So they understood that exile did not abrogate the covenants. In other words, when we are going through suffering, struggle. There is no excuse for us to stop resisting the devil or to stop our worship to God. There is no excuse. You were supposed to present yourself as a, a living sacrifice. And you know, Daniel and his friends, they did so. They did so. Also, notice that such an evil and immoral assimilation for Christians does not hap- happen overnight. You see that? But gradually. You, kids, you never wake up and they say, I'm going to turn my back to God. I don't care more about scripture. That's not going to happen. That's going to be gradually in your life. And it can be in our life as adults as well. And perhaps, it's also already happening in your lives. As you kids, start to be exposed to secular literature, education, Friends outside the church, new religious practice, politics, and so on. And again, all those things here that I just mentioned, secular education, literature, friends out of the church cycle, they're not bad. They're not bad. Of course, we need to, to, to make new friends. We need to, to reach people for Jesus. Of course we need to make new friends. Of course we need to learn about other religions, politics. Of course we need to to read secular literature. Of course. That's the way we can be fair in our critics. That's the way we approach. We'll be able, equipped to approach people from other contexts. I remember studying Islam for a week from 80, 80... Eight o'clock in the morning to five o'clock in the afternoon. So tired. And question myself: Why need to read the Quran? Why need to memorize the second Quran and their theology? Well, later on, I discovered why. It's helped me so much to approach a Muslim right now. So well, there is nothing bad. But we need to understand that when you kids, you're gonna read, you're gonna read secular literature. You're gonna hear secular people in university college. But keep in mind what I'm going to say now. There is no religion neutrality when it comes to science, philosophy, politics, social parties. They're not neutral. In other words, they believe in something. They believe in something. And what they produce, whether in science and philosophy, is gonna come up with religion presuppositions in any way, in some way or another. There is no problem in studying Marx. Karl Marx. Of course, there's no problem. But you need to understand that Karl Marx has a material view of the world. There is no God, there's no place for God, or supernatural phenomena. And Daniel is aware of that. He is aware. He knows. That what he's going through right now is not just a training to be a prince in the king's palace. It's a training to be a worship of, of the king's god. The false gods. This is an indoctrination, indoctrination in the Babylonian religions. Ideologies. Agenda. Which he was very rooted in false god. Idolatry opposing god's sovereignty, opposing god's authority, created water, created order, god's glory. And again, it doesn't happen overnight. You're not going to turn your back to god overnight. That's going to be gradually. First, they were giving food. And the Hebrew word here is a uh, rich food. Imagine yourself kids, you have your parents outside the palace as slaves, eating rubbish. And you are here in the palace, eating this delicious food. But Daniel knows that, this food here, as delicious they it could be, they were probably consecrated to idols, or blessed by prayers, dedicated to idols, false gods. And then later on, you see it gradually, Daniel and his friends had their Jewish name changed. Their Jewish names which their parents gave to express God's faithfulness, goodness, and mercy attributes. Now they were given uh, Babylon names to praise uh, Babylon uh, idols and false gods. You see that? And why they' are doing so is just to make those kids to forget where they came from, to forget their parents' teaching. And that's what the world's going to do with you kids. The world, the, the, the society is going to press you to forget your parents' teaching. Keep in mind, they're going to throw you against your parents. And by the way, changing names here at that time meant new identity. New lo- loyalty to a new king, to a new lord, to a new God. You can see that when God made a covenant with Abraham, his name be- before was Abraham. So that's the way changing names mean now you be under a new ruler. And yet Daniel and his friends remained faithful to God. Faithful, not only to resist the temptation of assimilation, but also keeping their worship exclusive to God. Not just in a negative sense, but also in a positive sense. So here we change our second point here. Keeping the worship exclusive to God. Verse 8. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food, or with the wine that he drank. You see that? I don't want this food. You just have something to draw, I saw. You see Daniel and his friends' kids? I don't want that. Go away with it. (laughs) So, here's the challenge. Here's the challenge right now when we are called to worship God alone. And the challenge is, look at verse 6. Look at verse 6 and see that Daniel and his friends were not the only youth here who were brought into the king's palace. They were not the only one. There were many more among them. There are many other teenagers. But they are the only one resisting immorality, idolatry. And they are the only one keeping their worship exclusive to God. You see God? You see that? Although you are coming to church with your wife, with your kids, there is a point that God calls you personally to worship Him. And you're going to see times that you are, even at your house, in your, in your, you're not seeing your wife, or your husband, or your kids. kids, You're not seeing your parents giving the worship that God deserves. And yet, God still demands that you keep your own worship to him. No matter what's happening. At work. School. College. He was supposed to keep. The worship. Exclusive to God. And then verse and 10. Then, the challenge increases. Because. To say no to the king's assignments. For a daily uh, portion of food. Was a kind of due respect here, a violation that could result in death. So the question is, what is the source for for Daniel's faithfulness here? Why he's he's resisting the devil and keeping his worship to God? Where the power comes from here? This is not a a text for us just to be legalists. There is a source. God is behind. As we are going to see in our third point. God faithfully to his words of judgment. And of promise. But right now here. I see that the fear of the Lord. Has been foundational for Daniel. To keep his worship to God. See verse 10. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel. When Daniel rejected the food. See what he says here. I fear my Lord, the king. I fear my Lord, who assigned your food and drink. For why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youth who are, who are of your own age? So you, you'd endanger my head with the king. So I see here that in some way, Daniel's objection was understood by the chief of the eunuchs in terms of fear. If you're fearing your God, I'm fearing the king. You better start eating those foods here and drink the wine. Because I'm fearing the king. So in some sense, this guy here is understanding that Daniel's objection here is in terms of fear. And we know it's the fear of the Lord. And pretty much what Jesus' word sounds in Matthew 10, verse 28. Do not fear those who kill the body. Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. You see that? That's the fear that Daniel is fearing right now. The fear of the Lord. He knows... That he can be put to death by the king. But he cannot put to death by the almighty king. His soul was kept in God's hand. He was so sure about that. Second, see that Daniel's objection to the king's assignment for a daily portion of his food and wine. Is not just a negative objection. But also a positive est- statement of his worship being exclusive to God. Now, before moving further, let's remind ourselves the redemptive historical context here. Remember I said, this is a time in which God has been faithful to his words of judgment, to his words of promise, what, he prof- what Jeremiah predicted, 17 years in exile. Remember I said, this is a h- historical context here. Now back to Daniel. He's not just saying no to the king. He's not just saying no to the king's food. He's also saying yes to God's word, to God's command. He's saying yes to God's covenant with him. Keeping the ceremonial law. Now, I have a few questions for us here. Challenging ones here. How is that possible for Daniel to say yes to God? When in fact, he is living a time in which God himself, at some extent, is saying no to his people, no to Daniel, by sending them to exile. How is that possible for Daniel still keeping his worship exclusive to God, when it was God himself who sent his people to exile, destroyed the temple, Jerusalem, the ordained place for them to worship? Is God, does God still want us to worship Him? Well, He destroyed everything. And how is that possible that He kept His worship to God? Although He was not in Jerusalem. Although He was not in the temple. It was God Himself who allowed the destruction of the Jerusalem and His holy temple. And now He wants me to worship Him? That's not fair. I know your kids used those words so many times as my... It's not fair. 13, 14 years old he was. How is that possible that Daniel is not turning his back on God when God himself seemed to be turning his back to his own people by punishing them through exile? All those, those questions are... Interesting. And King rose so many debates with atheists. I, perhaps I already mentioned, I have a friend of mine, a former Christian, and, who became atheist. And one day in our conversation, he suddenly accused God to be a sociopathic God, crazy God, for kicking Adam and Eve out of the garden just because they disobey him. That's God's crazy. Then I asked him, well, do you really think God was a sociopathic God because he punished Adam and Eve? He said, yes, I do. And I said, well, do you think that Adam had the same view, the same understanding as God being a sociopathic God as you have? And then he asked me, what do you mean? I said, well, I mean that in the mankind history... Adam, you'd be the best person to do such affirmation. To call God a sociopathic God. Because he had tasted God's goodness and kindness. What do you think? And he said, well, yes. Of course, yes, I said. Because he tasted God's goodness. He was the first one, pretty close to God. And I said, now... Have you ever noticed when you were still reading your Bible, how Adam named his wife? Oh yeah, he named Eve. Yes. Well, do you know the meaning of the word Eve? And he said, yes. Well, mother of all mankind, of all livings. I said, yes. Well, it, it was named after the fall. After God punished him. And he said, What do you mean? I said, Well, if after the fall and and being punished by God, Adam had understood that God was a sociopathic being, he would never name his wife with a meaning that carries God's promise. He would never do that. He would name Eve, God is a sociopathic God. But no, he named Eve. God is faithful. He will keep His promise. I don't know. I know He is faithful to His words of judgment. You judgment kind. But I know that He is faithful to His words of promise. He will keep His promise. And when was, when was that? that I did not heard that. And He said to me, Oh, it was before the fall. No, it was after. Genesis 3.15. Isn't it amazing that after pronouncing His word of judgment, He pronounced His word of grace? He didn't leave Adam and Eve in a hopeless and helpless situation. And, and that's the way that Daniel is seen here. Like Adam, he, he, he just not only accepted God's words of judgment. As he, he wrote in verse, in verse 2. It was God who gave the king of Judah to the king of Babylon. But he accepted the word of promise. He knew that's why he kept his worship exclusive to God. And then he tasted God's faithfulness. He tasted God's faithfulness to his word of judgment and promise. That's our final point here. In verse 2, as I said, Daniel affirmed God's faithfulness to his words of judgment. It was not an a, a accident. Exile was not an accident. Verse 2, Daniel says, God gave gave us into the king's hands. He's the one. He's faithful to his promise. He said to Jeremiah, and he did so. But now, in verse 9 here, he's affirming God's uh, uh, faithfulness uh, uh, to his promise. Verse 9, And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. In other words, God caused the chief to have a favorable attitude toward Daniel. Verse 17, again. And, the, and for these youth, God gave. It was God who gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel, to Daniel, he gave even more. He gave visions and dreams God provided common knowledge and also saving knowledge, supernatural knowledge, so that his people could resist assimilation and kept their worship exclusively to God. In verse 19 and 20, after interviewing Daniel and his friends, the king was more impressed with them than with any of the others' youth, even among his counselors. And again, they saw God's faithfulness to them. The king placed Daniel and his friends on the leadership of his administration. So although Daniel and his friends entered in the king's service, they did not engage in idolatry. They did not compromise their holiness and worship to God. They remained faithful to God's covenant even at the risk Of their own lives. They did not embrace the evil. What a great lesson for us. They kept their worship exclusive to God. And they tested God's faithfulness. To his words. Of promise. As we know. As the history of these people unfolds. They were brought back to the promised land. They rebuilt the temple. They start to worship again. But as I said still in the temple, still back in Jerusalem, they felt that they were still in exile. Why? Because they were doing the same evil things. When Nehemiah was writing chapter 9, it was in response to the people, sin and immorality. And just, it, it just reflects us. We are still in exile. God didn't finish His work with us. His kingdom is not yet here in its fullness. We are still subject to temptation. I know that you already noticed that. I'm sure. And we fail here and there. But God still keeps His promise. He's going to redeem us once for all. So I close with Peter's word for us just to remind that while in this earth, while as pilgrims here, see what Peter says to us in 1 Peter. Peter. Chapter 2, verse 11 and 12. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. You see that? Peter, you still understand that we are in exile today. I urge you as sojourners in exile to abstain from the passion of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Kept your conduct among the Gentile, honorable, So that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Nebuchadnezzar, he praised God. Because he saw in Daniel and his friends their loyalty to God. And may God's grace help us to be faithful in this fallen generation. So that even the lost can glorify God through our testimony. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the saving work, perfect work of Jesus Christ. We thank you for your grace to help us to resist the devil. To resist assimilation into this evil culture that we are living right now. Which press us so much. So help us, O oh Lord, to keep our worship with you. Remind ourselves about your words of promise, your words of judgment. The evil that we see now and sometimes we desire, they will be judged. So help us to fear you, O oh Lord, and help us to live a life which proclaim your worthiness. We pray that your Holy Spirit may apply this truth of the gospel into our hearts. And we pray as our Lord and King, who also resists the temptation, who also lives to worship you alone. We pray as
2: He calls the ways of the flesh and the ways of the spirit really cannot be reconciled at all. They are mortal enemies, and they are nothing but mortal enemies. As long as God is holy and as long as sin is filthy, the two will be at odds with each other. Paul pictures this in Corinthians as a matter of eating from two different tables, of one of two tables. He says in 1 Corinthians 10, you cannot drink of the cup of the Lord and of the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord in the table of demons. The antithesis between good and evil extends into everything, and this antithesis is marked by how we eat and how we drink. This point is, the point is that you may not drink, I'm sorry, the point is not that you may not eat if you have not sinned. The point is that you must not eat here with the formed and settled intention of continuing to eat at both tables. This is high-handed arrogance of the kind that God strikes. This means that there is only one real option for us. If we are clutching to any known sin, we, have not, we are not just invited to repent or asked to repent. Rather, this solemn and joyful moment constitutes a commandment that we must repent. The sin must be forsaken. As a sin of the the sin which must be forsaken is that of divided loyalties. Garden variety sins are confessed at the first part of the service. Divided loyalties must be dealt with here. If you are baptized, and when these sins have been dealt with, and you've not been lawfully excommunicated from the church, then you're not just invited to come and partake, rather we insist that you come. And we do not do this on our own authority. It's the Lord, the Lord of the table, the Lord Jesus, insists that you come to Him and partake with Him and in Him. So welcome.